the middle of 40 days of prayer. In fact, if you've been following us online, you know that today is day seven. So following the service, we'll post today's devotion leading us to prayer uh, uh, from one of our very own. If you would like to participate in that, record a uh, short thing. We'll provide you with, with all the resources you need. Uh, we certainly hook you up with that. But with that, what we're going to do uh, periodically throughout the year is we want to take a brief break from what it is that we were discussing. We've been looking at the turtles, of course, and emphasize why it is that we are um, focused so much this year on the gospel for every home. So we're in Romans chapter 10. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 9 to 15. In your few Bibles, that is page 1007. 1007. With that, if you will, stand with me out of reference for God's own word. The Apostle Paul writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, starting verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Go with prayer. Father, we always ask you, you open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and ears, our mouths and hands and our feet. We are as embodied feet that you would uh, uh, lead us ever closer to Jesus. And that requires the work of your spirit. Would you be so kind this morning? Lead us and call us. May I decrease so that you can increase. May your son we pray. Amen. Back in 2012, Lifeway Research, you may not know that Lifeway is more than a Christian bookstore or, a, or an online store where we buy all of our Sunday school material. Uh, but Lifeway is, is also a research uh, ministry. In 2012, they published um, a, a major research study about the habits of American evangelicals. In that study, they found that 80% uh, of American evangelicals who attend worship monthly believe they bear responsibility with sharing their faith. I don't think that is a surprising uh, statistic at all. Uh, we would like it for it to be 100% of all uh, uh, church-going folk. To understand that they are called by God to, to share their faith. However, in the same study, they revealed that of that 80%, 61% admitted to not sharing the gospel in the previous six months. I wonder what that number is in COVID. <laughs> Thirdly, they, they, they discussed that 48% of worshipers have not invited an unreached person to join them in worship over the last six months. Now, what I think is most striking about these statistics is the fact that there is nothing surprising about them. I've been in, in church ministry long enough, been in church life my, my entire life to know that we all know that this is a calling, but we struggle with the fulfillment of that calling. And here in this passage, Paul walks us through the process of both the content and the calling for evangelism. Let us begin here with the foundation of evangelism. That, of course, is the gospel. 
Now, before we can talk about what does it mean to, to go and reach the nations for Christ, we must begin with what it is that we are taking to them. I was, I was thinking about this this week, and one image came to mind. And that was the image of wearing masks in the store. Do you be pro against that's not my point. My point is all of us have had this, this moment where we get out of the car and we're halfway into the door. And then what do we realize? We left our mask in, in the car, right? We end up being like the Beatles here. It's one of my favorite memes ever created in humanity, right? You know, this is a, none of y'all are Beatles fans, right? It's a classic Beatles image, right? Millennials. Uh, yes, there is a Beatle, but these are the Beats. Oh, right? It's, it's spelled differently, but you're millennials and Gen Zers, so you can spell things however you want. Um, so long as it's not engendered. So, uh, but this is one of the Beatles, whichever one it is. Moving on, and forgot his mask. So, too, in order for us to share the gospel, we have to have the gospel. We have to know what it is. And I think this is where Christians have made uh, the biggest mistake over the last several decades. We have assumed the gospel. We have assumed that all believers know the gospel and that we live in a country that has a, a general idea of the gospel. And so what we've been doing in a consumeristic society is we've tried to present the gospel in a way that will sell. So we try to make Christianity cool. We try to make it marketable. We try to make it political. We try to make it powerful. And what happens is that Christianity has been perceived as something that it is not. It's seen as a social movement, a political movement, a moral movement. Anything but a story about redemption. But according to Paul here, we see exactly what the gospel is. So what then is the gospel? What is this foundation that we are to share? The first thing is the gospel is Christ. The gospel is Christ. It, it's very clear there, right? That, that, that he says um, that Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved there. Verse 9. You see that Christ is standing at the center of it. Now, this makes sense, right? If, if you were to identify yourself politically as a Reaganite, the presumption is you may want to know who Reagan, Ronald, Ronaldus Magnus, as we like to call him, Ronald Reagan is in order to understand what is meant by the term Reaganite. If you're an FDR Democrat, Roosevelt Democrat, you may want to look into who Roosevelt was, right? So, too, if you call yourself a Christian, it makes sense that Christ stands at the center, who he is and what he did. That's precisely what Paul does. He begins with the person of Christ. What do we mean by Christ? We, we, we first of all begin with the person. Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So this, is, this means that Christianity is centered not on who I am, who I want to be, or who I think I am, or what other people tell me I am, but rather who Christ is. Now this separates Christianity from virtually all other religions. Think about it. If we were to discover that Muhammad, turned, come to find out, was a coal miner from West Virginia, now there would be a bit of an identity crisis with Islam, but it wouldn't change that much. Because it's not centered on his identity. It's centered on the message he, he brought. So too, if, if Buddha was discovered to be a day trader from Lebanon, Kansas, not a whole lot would change about Buddhism. But if we discover that Christ was indeed not the God-man, Christianity will crumble. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And since it is sin that separates us, from God. We need that mediator, one who can sympathize 
with the, uh, the offender, that is you and I, and sympathize with the offended, that is God. He alone, as the God-man, fully God, fully man, can, can mediate redemption for us. Isn't this what we've seen during Christmas with the hark of Hark the herald angel sing, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And this is a very important point, just this very simple point of who Christ is. This means, despite what the bumper sticker might say, Jesus is not your co-pilot. Jesus is not your buddy. He is Lord. He is King. He is divine. He is man without blemish. This is why I like to quote C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He makes this point. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a moral teacher, they might say. But I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing Lewis says we should not do. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, what a great reference that is. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. We, we've got to begin there. The person of Christ lies at the center of the gospel. But not just who Jesus is is at the center, but what Christ has done. Both his person and his work. Notice there, if you believe, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your or confess, yeah, believe, I'll get it straight there in a minute, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice, it isn't just that Jesus is Lord. But as Lord Jesus has accomplished something, he has done something. He was risen from the dead. Think about it. If all Jesus did was show up and prove himself uh, to, be, to be a nice guy, it would be a fascinating story. You may even want to follow his moral teaching. It ain't going to be much farther than that. There's been, been plenty of people who were fascinating characters, who lived moral lives and taught uh, a better way to live moral lives. But it ain't much more than that. Notice here, what Paul is arguing is that the gospel is not good advice. You can get that on Amazon, unless, of course, you have an opinion about gender. <laughs> but the gospel brings good news. It's more than just good advice. It is good news. And so notice that, that Paul emphasizes Jesus did two things. First of all, he, he died. I didn't put it up there. He, he, uh, he, he died. His death. History has always understood the value of sacrifice. Christ was risen from the dead. Isn't this why we, we celebrate and we honor troops and emergency responders? Because they risk their life for the good of others. We've always understood sacrifice is necessary and is, it, 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 it's heroic. Religion has understood this well. For centuries, sin was atoned for by sacrifice. Justice is required for evil and sin and injustice. Christ accomplishes this at the cross. If you want a good example of this, go to the gospel in the story of Barabbas. Remember the story. We won't go into much detail. Pilate says, choose between the guilty and the innocent. Christ and Barabbas. You remember what, what they said? Out of envy, they, they let Barabbas go. The one who is actually guilty.
cowardly crime of Barabbas. That cross he's hanging from between the two thieves is the cross reserved for Barabbas, who is guilty. But by, by the law, Christ now pays the price for that crime, allowing Barabbas to go free. That's an image of what Christ has done on the cross. Not only did he die for us, he was risen from the dead. Paul makes that very clear in there in verse 9. After all, what good is a dead Savior? Look, you can go to the gravesite of Muhammad, I think. I'm sure there's several of them. You go to the gravesite of, of Joseph Smith, or Brigham Young, a host of other religious leaders. You cannot go to the gravesite of Christ, of Nazareth. He has done something no one has done. He has conquered the grave. He is risen from the dead. And his resurrection breaks the bondage that, that we have of death and depravity and the, and the devil. And through it, we are given victory and peace. Victory from, from the sting of death. Victory over our sin. Victory over Satan itself. And from that victory comes peace. Genuine peace. Why? Because not just of who Christ is, but what Christ has done. So the first aspect of the gospel begins with Christ. But then it quickly moves to confession. Notice there again, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. If Christ is objectively Savior, then salvation hinges on our acceptance of that fact. This means more than saying that it is true, but surrendering to it as the truth. If Christ is Lord, then what are you going to do about it? In the vein of Lewis we saw earlier, Timothy Keller once, once tweeted something like, Christ can either be crowned or he can be crucified. There is no middle ground there. Every soul must decide, will we confess Christ as Lord and follow him in our words, or will we try to put him back into the tomb and live our lives the way we see fit? But what does it mean to confess? Let's look at this briefly as we can. First of all, now you may want to write this down because you, you may forget, to confess means to confess, right? The first part of confession is confession. <laughs> and then I went to cemetery for that, just, just to give you that, that great insight. But what I mean is, is, is what John Newton gives us at the end of his life. He said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. That is what we mean by confession. You are a sinner. You are guilty. You are without hope. Now, don't, don't patronize me with talk of nature and nurture. Your feelings were hard. You were poorly educated. You grew up poor. No, no, no. Grasp it. You are lost. You are a rebel. You are a great sinner. But the good news of the gospel is we confess not just our brokenness, but our Redeemer. I am broken. I am guilty. I have shame. I am a sinner. But Christ is a far greater Redeemer. So it begins with confession and moves quickly to, to and I put that one up there either, it moves to repentance. If acknowledging our brokenness, shame, and guilt is the first step, surrendering to Christ is the next step. Repentance is the surrendering of our sin, is the say that I choose in Christ to surrender what has defined me and the sin that holds me in bondage, and I give it all to Christ. Repentance is not an apology, it is a surrendering. It is a moving forward in a better direction. Again, to quote Lewis, he, he says that repentance is basically you're at a fork of the road. Will you continue to go the wrong way? Or will you choose the right path and never look back? <coughs> Confession, repentance, and finally, faith. 
Notice that Paul speaks both of confession and faith. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ raised you from the dead, you will be saved. Believe the truth about Christ and what he offers to you. Forgiveness, mercy, peace, love, and grace. There's a third aspect of the gospel. We must move quickly, and that is certainty. Don't miss this part. It's right there in verses 11 and 13. Isn't it? And notice how quickly Christ in confession leads naturally into the certainty of grace. The one who confesses and believes will be forgiven. This is a certainty here. Notice the language there in, in verse 11. Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice the word everyone there. That's not a typo. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. Notice there, what does he say? You're either a Jew or a Greek, which means everyone, right? Which growing up in Kentucky, I thought everyone was either a Kentucky or a Louisville fan. Surely. Which, by the way, Louisville beat Kentucky last night. So all you Kentucky fans were rooting for Louisville last night, weren't you? You don't have to say it publicly in church, but I know the truth. Notice thirdly, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice, everyone. Everyone, everyone will be saved. If you call upon the Lord for salvation, if you call upon him with your brokenness, if you call upon him for hope, what will you find? The certainty of God's grace rooted in Christ, the result of confession, the certainty of God's love. I think B.C. Talk summarized it well in the 1996 song. Um, between you and me, and it said quickly, or, or, or simply, if confession is the road to healing, forgiveness is the promise. Well, that is the foundation of evangelism. That is the gospel. Let us quickly look at the, the call to evangelism, and that is simply to go. To go. Paul quickly moves from the foundation of the gospel to the call to share the gospel. And that is really what we see, particularly in verses 14 and 15, isn't it? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? If the answer is faith and repentance in Christ and his finished work, then how will anyone believe and repent if they are not told this story? That's the question. See how naturally one bleeds into the other? How would they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to, to, to believe in him who they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? I want us to notice as quickly as we can two things about verses 14 and 15. They're very simple. They're not profound. And you don't need a fancy degree to get there. Number one, those who believe are those who are sent. Does that, does that make sense? Does that make sense? Right? If, if we had time, we could broaden out the context, particularly Romans chapters 9 to 11, the challenge he did Israel with wrapping in the Jews and the Gentiles and all that sort of stuff. But, but he, he begins that, right? Those who believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the certainty that is open to everyone. He, then he says, he looks at those who believe and confess. He says, how will anyone believe and confess if there is no one sent to them? Those who believe are those who are sent. One of the things I've observed during COVID is, first of all, we all have opinions, don't we? Where did all these opinions come from? My goodness. We got them in abundance. Way too abundant, right? We've got them. But, so we all think, well, I think my boss should do this because of COVID. I, I really think that's a mistake. I think we're going too far, or I don't think we're going far enough. Right? We all have opinions. But can I tell you a second thing I've noticed about COVID? None of us want to be the ones making the decision. How many of us, privacy of our home, we would never put this online, of course. We criticize the government. 
criticize a boss, criticize some organizational leader, but then secretly we'll say, but if I were in their shoes, I don't know what I would do. I gotta be honest with you, I, I, I have an opinion about our governor. Do not want to make have to make the decisions he's making, right? I don't. Do not want that at all. In fact, I would say the same thing about the superintendent and school board. You really think you, you, you can navigate these waters? That's just two examples. I mean, it's hard enough figuring out how to live your day-to-day -day life with COVID in a way that's safe, but, but is it is it helicopter, right? It's been a struggle. But it's amazing. We all have opinions. None of us want to have to make decisions. I think we do the same thing when it comes to our faith. We all want it. We all want redemption. We all want to receive redemption. But if we can just keep it to ourselves, we'll feel a lot safer. We'll feel a lot safer. But that is not what Paul wants us to do I was thinking of, 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 of a scene from a movie came to mind. That, of course, is The Grinch, right? The, the movie, was it from 2000? The Jim Carrey Grinch, right? There's a great scene in The Grinch, right? You remember that Cindy Lou Who invites him to, to, to their, their whatever it is that the, the Who's do, right? And you remember, he's trying to get out of it. He doesn't want to go. And he's trying to find sheep, so he opens up his schedule. Can I kind of read this description? I think this is great, right? The greatest scene in film history. The nerve of those Who's, he says. Inviting me down there on such short notice. Even if I wanted to go, my schedule wouldn't allow it. One o'clock, wallow in self-pity. I love that. 4.30, that means he's wallowing self-pity for three and a half hours. 4.30, stare into the abyss. 5 o'clock, solve world hunger. Tell no one. 5.30, jazzercise, whatever that is. 6.30, dinner with me. I can't cancel that again. 7 o'clock, wrestle with my self-loathing. I'm booked. Well, if I bump the loathing to 9, I can still be done to lay in, <clears throat> lay in bed and stare at the ceiling and slip, slip slowly into madness, but what would I wear, right? Is this not one of the greatest scenes ever? And if, if you disagree with that, then you're wrong. It's <laughs> wrong. But I love that phrase, solve world hunger. Tell no. How many of us Christians? We have world peace. We have hope for the hopeless. We have love for the loveless. We have redemption for those in bondage. But in our comfortable peace, tell no one. Tell no one. The propagation of the gospel demands our obedience to evangelism. Those who believe those who are sent. And can I just make one other brief point? Those who are sent must use words. There is a false quote attributed to Francis of Assisi that says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. A couple problems with that. One, he didn't say it. Secondly, he wouldn't have said it. And thirdly, it is biblically wrong. What does Paul say here? Preach the gospel. Use words. Use words. Remember, those who hear, believe, and repent. Now, I may be deaf in one ear, but I'm pretty sure to hear involves noise. And to hear the gospel preached involves words. This may sound like a small detail, but it's significant in American evangelicalism. 
Because we have spent decades doing lifestyle evangelism thinking we could just live a good life and people would just, through uh, uh, some sort of uh, mystical experience, discover the gospel without us ever mentioning Jesus. Christianity is a revealed religion. The creation and consummation. Notice that God did not create the world by magic. He created the word by words. He spoke the world into existence. This is why, by the way, Christianity popularized the sermon. Most religions are centered on ritual and rules. If you come and do the rituals, if you keep the rules, you're good. Christianity came and said, no, we have a story to tell. We don't have a law to give. We have a story to tell. And you can either believe the story or reject it, but your eternal salvation hinges on whether or not you will believe who Christ is and what he has done and your response to it. It's a story to tell, and stories require words. Thus, for evangelism to be effective, we must tell the story of Jesus. Why is it then that we can receive Christ and hear the story of Christ and receive it with open arms, and we go strangely quiet? Frankfurt is 80% lost. 80%, about 40,000 people in our community are heading towards hell right now. Right now, many of us are overly worked up and stressed out by the direction of our nation, all of which is unnecessary, and at its root is a refusal of the church to go next door and say, let me tell you about Jesus. If you want the world to change, don't get caught up on an election. Focus on it. Carl F. H. Henry, uh, the late Carl F. H. Henry, was an influential evangelical of the 20th century. In fact, it was argued that if Billy Graham was the uh, evangelist of American evangelical, evangelicalism of the 20th century, Carl F. H. Henry was the intellect behind American evangelicalism of the 20th century. He was influential. A lot of the, the, the people at Southern the 20th century and whatnot wrote some influential books for him. But one quote in particular stands out to me, I think is worth highlighting. It summarizes this passage well. He said simply, the good news is only good news if it arrives there in the end. What did Paul, how did he put it? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I was mentioning, I was with, it was Friday night at our student night. I still remember when both of our children were born. You know, labors last for several hours and whatnot. And what do you have? Family and friends and church members, and they all gather in the lobby. What do they do? They just wait. And any minute, something could be announced. And any minute, a story could be told. What are they looking for? They're looking for the dad, right? Mom's a little busy, right? They're looking for the dad. And, and when dad shows up, what does dad say? Baby born. Eight pounds. However many inches. Mom and baby are healthy. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. If you are, if you confess, you are called. Now let us go boldly with courage and change the world. Let's pray. Our Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to Understand without altering it, the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, given to us by our Savior, delivered by the apostles, received now today. May we just not receive it, may we share it. 
Neither's gift is, is worth sharing. But right now, 80% of this county is lost. 40,000 people. The entire state is full. The souls who desperately need So the work is overwhelming. But let's believe, as we said earlier, that the harvest is plentiful. Raise up the workers. Over the next year, we are going to go door to door, pray for our neighbors, do outreach events. All with the hopes that souls will be saved, the saved will be sanctified. But without your spirit, nothing will.